Welcome to The Bookcase. I am Kate Gibson, and I'm going to introduce the show before I introduce my co-host as Herman's Hermit sang a great song called I'm Henry Eighth. I Am, and they said second first, same as the first. So this is our second show with David Sedaris. I'm really excited to be having a second show with him. All right, co-host, take it away. I used to be Kate's father. I'm Charlie <laughs> Gibson. Uh, it was a role that I actually appreciated, and I was very proud of her. Now I've become her co-host. She sort of has kicked me out of the family, I guess, or <laughs> removed me. But I am her father. And this is, if you're just joining us uh, for the first time, our uh, two-generational, two-gender look at books. And and as Katie mentioned, this is David Sedaris, Redux. Yeah. Our first uh, podcast of the year was with him, and we are sort of breaking form to do two. But getting David when we were all in the same place, which is something that he wanted, uh, took a number of months. And we just began to have this wonderful conversation with him that lasted, I think, probably about two hours, Kate. And we didn't want to leave out as I said in the description of the podcast, we didn't want to leave out any of the good stuff. Yeah, talking to him is as rich as reading him. He is so fun to talk to. He's amazing. I mean, first of all, if you haven't read him, I highly, highly, highly recommend his books. We talked about how amazing they were last week. I'm going to reemphasize it this week. If you have not read David Sedaris, go out and get Me Talk Pretty One Day or Holidays on Ice or Barrel Fever or any of his amazing books because you will find yourself laughing you will find yourself touched and you will find yourself nodding along with his amazing observations. I've really enjoyed it. And one of the things I really enjoyed too, when I was prepping for this, for this conversation was I wanted to sort of re-listen to some of the stuff that I'd read. So I listened, I listened to some of his audiobooks, and he performs everything he does personally. His audiobooks are like a combination of a comedy routine and performance art and a reading and some of the pieces, some of the chapters he reads live, some of them are live readings. Some of them are very personal, just him and a microphone. There's different music cues in between each of them that he selects. I mean, they feel they feel like a long play radio show. They're really fun to listen to. As we mentioned, and as you heard last week, David is an incomparable essayist who is very humorous. And I would suggest if you're reading your first David Sedaris book, I would say the best of me, where I think they have picked what I think are some of his best essays and put them all in one book. Some of them appear in other books, but this is a very good compilation. But Kate talks about how good he is with the audio versions of his books. But it would be a natural, it seems to me, because as he says, where he feels most comfortable is when he's out on the road and he's talking to audiences. He does these long, long, long book tours, but they're really readings. And that's, as he says, when he tries out his new material to see how audiences will react to it. But the readings are important to him to see how audiences react. This is the way he communes with audiences to do readings. And so it seems to me he would be very, very comfortable in front of a microphone doing the audio books. Yeah, I think he is a little, again, I think he's like a comedian or a live band. I mean, he uses it to test out things, to see what sort of response he's getting, or as he puts it at one point, whether the paragraph is worth the breath it takes to read it to an audience. He looks at publishing, writing, and performing as inseparable, which is, again, something that yeah. is, I think, somewhat unique to him. So we begin this second chapter of the David Sedaris podcast, talking about his work with audiobooks. So it's David Sedaris, Kate Gibson, and her co-host. I listened to 
diabetes with owls. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, how involved are you in your audiobooks? Because some of them are live pieces, some of them are intimately read pieces, the music is different in each one, the pauses before the music can be different with each one. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of individual artistic choices that go into your audiobook. Are you involved in that as well? Well, I've worked with the same audio person from the very beginning. And so she finds music and then runs it by me. And then I'll choose who does the music. And then she'll say, let's do this one live. And let's do this one live. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, And I think I'd like to do the next one completely live. Mm. Because I think you have more control over your timing that way. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes if you know you do make pickups and you make mistakes, then an editor is piecing that together. And they can piece it together in a way that just ruins your timing. And sometimes that has to be very, very exact for something to... That's interesting because it's funny. One of my favorite comedians in the world was Stephen Wright. And actually listening to him on album was easier because when he was in front of a live audience, he went so fast that sometimes I couldn't catch huh. up with his jokes. But you're right. I feel like it's a slower pace when you're reading in front of a live audience. It's refreshing. I don't know. Sometimes when it's somebody who you like and then you hear them live, then it's in a weird way you think, oh, those people laughing are so stupid. They don't know. <laughs> they don't know what's I know what's funny. You know, he and I have a relationship. They, those people, they don't, I don't even know what they're doing there. So you can be very proprietary. And so that's always been interesting to me. Sometimes I'll do a book signing and somebody will come along who hates everyone else in the theater. Like it's just, <laughs> and it has something to say about all of them, right? But they just connect with me, but the rest of them, ugh. You know, John Cleese tells this story about when Monty Python was performing at the Hollywood Bowl and they went out and they told their first joke and they got a huge laugh. And then they didn't laugh. Nobody laughed through the rest of the performance. And they were all thrown off. And it took them 10 minutes to realize that the audience wasn't laughing because they were mouthing the words to huh. all the sketches. Wow. So they had just gotten too involved. Huh. To, oh, they knew the sketches so yes. well. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh. Did your dad ever read your work? I don't think so. I mean, I, I remember I dedicated a book to him mm -hmm. and then I didn't hear anything back. And then I called and I said, you know, I dedicated that book to you. I know, I saw. <laughs> <laughs> when really, when you dedicate a book to somebody, they're supposed to cry. Yes. Is what they're supposed to do. That's why you don't like to dedicate a book to a dead person because they're dead and they can't cry. But when you dedicate it to somebody like that and they don't cry, it's like, that was a lot of work <laughs> for zero gratitude. You taught writing at one point very early, early on, saying you only got the job because the guy who was supposed to fill it didn't show up. Could you go back and teach writing now? Is what you do simply instinctive or could you teach it to other people? I did an interview once with Ted Williams and asked him if he could tell people how to hit. No. He said, you just do it. You just have that innate talent. There are lots of people obviously trying to teach people how to hit. There's a lot of people trying to teach people how to write. Could you do it? No. I had a student when I was teaching and she was so talented. And all I could do was stand back and point her in the right direction, you know. And she has grown up to be just a great writer, but a great teacher as well. And she can diagnose something. She can look at a piece and then say, well, here's what's wrong with it. And she's exactly 
right. The way that she has of analyzing something is just so, it's just a real gift. I guess it's like being a doctor, like being a good doctor. And I'm not a good doctor. I, I would say, well, if your back hurts, I guess stay home. Yeah, let's- <laughs> <laughs> but as far as as far as teaching writing for you at least, it's innate. Not something that you could explain to me how to do, and then I'd be able to write something in the Sidera style. Not that I could do. Somebody else could maybe do that and tell you how to do it, but I couldn't do it. I mean, I, one of the pieces, you know, I made a big mistake, massive mistake, and I put in an essay that I answer all my mail. I remember reading And that. I also put in an essay, I wrote about the importance of sending thank you letters. But I meant thank you letters, like for gifts and stuff like that. I'm getting sackfuls of mail, sackfuls <laughs> of mail. And then there's little thank you cards that you buy in the grocery store. And basically it's people saying, I guess now you have to write me back. <laughs> and and have you ever opened one that just says nia 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 nia? They, they might as well. <laughs> I mean, and and I, but some and sometimes it's people sending me their writing. So this fellow sent me his stuff, and I don't want to get into that with people. I don't want to be responsible for that. But I did notice that his essay that he sent is so interior for the first four pages, that when something starts to happen, you just don't even care anymore, mm. you know? So I could say that to somebody, but I don't know that that's going to... Fix it. As fix, it right, fix. Then I look at this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem, and I don't... You have to dole out criticism. You have to give it to people in a way that they can still feel hopeful and that they can hear you. It's a real, it's a real gift. And mm-hmm. my, plus me in a classroom now, I'd last five minutes in a classroom. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just, to, just as we get to the end, there's a sentence that struck me. You said, Hugh, your partner of so many years, accuses me of being money hungry. And I wish it were that simple. Honestly, it's the attention I'm after. You talked about how you want to be the person when you walk in the room, they say, oh, Look, there's David Sedaris. But what is it now that gives you the greatest satisfaction being as successful as you are? I feel like I'm my best self when I'm on tour. I feel like I'm on my best when I'm on stage or when I'm signing books afterwards. That's the best version of myself. I always long to get back to it when I'm away from it. I just like the way... You know, I remember going to somebody's book signing and it was a lot for me to spend money on a hardcover book. It meant that I had to go without a lot of other things that week. And I waited in line. I thought, oh my, God, what am I going to say? And this person just signed the book, was talking to her publicist, signed the book and pushed it back at me. And, and I felt so stupid. You know, I just felt like, yeah, I bought, I spent all that money and I waited in line and she didn't even look at me. And and it wasn't like Hillary Clinton. You know, it wasn't somebody with like 8,000 people in line. But I just thought, I don't know. I guess when I sign books or whatever, I, I just think, I know what it's like for that person on the other side of the desk. Kate pointed out to me at one point that you'd written that one of the times you're happiest is just when you're about to go on stage. And that's the time it seems to me most people would be shaking in their boots. Or throwing I'm all, up. I'm all, yeah, I'm always nervous. 
Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess because if I had to memorize something, I'd be nervous. But mm. I'm reading. So it's not that hard to read. Yes, you, you know? did call it a lazy form of show business yeah. at one point. I like that. I mean, you got to choose what to read, but I give that some thought. And I don't know. There's something about after a while you learn to present what you've got with confidence. If you get out there and if you say, I really don't know, I I just wrote this and I'm not sure the ending, it probably doesn't work. The ending doesn't work and it's not that funny. But anyway, here we go. Like you don't want to, so instead present it with confidence and then see how it goes. And it's not like, I would never read something that's an hour long. Yeah, I would never, because then the audience, if they're not into it, they're just stuck there. So I read, I don't know four, five, six things. And I always end reading from my diary, which makes people forget everything that came before it. <laughs> really? Mm. Everything. No one, I can count on one hand the number of people who have ever said, I like that essay you read about such and such. Interesting. It's like that drug they give you for a colonoscopy. You know, they just, milk of, milk of amnesia is what the doctors call it. <laughs> and it just wipes their memories clean and they don't remember anything except the the dirty or funny diary yeah. entries that I read at the end. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to read David Sedaris. You get right into your meter. It's amazing how I can just suspend time and enjoy what you're writing and laugh along with the points that you make often. Pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Thank you for coming here. Well, thank, thank you so, you so much, much for having me. David Sedaris, Rapid Fire Questions. You're on tour about 200 days a year. Best hotel you've ever stayed in? Best hotel I've ever stayed in is the Biltmore Four Seasons in Santa Barbara, California. What makes a great hotel? This hotel is right on the ocean. There's nothing else around it. Your room is a little house. It's beautifully landscaped. And unfortunately, it closed during the pandemic and it hasn't reopened yet. Your tour sponsor pays for your hotel rooms. Would you pay for them? I would pay for that hotel. That's a big compliment. <laughs> <laughs> do you enjoy writing or performing more? Well, you can't do one without the other. So performing is my reward for being locked up in a room by myself writing. But there's something about discovering. I was lying in bed this morning and I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to write about my office. <laughs> and I made a couple notes in bed, but then I started I started veering off the trail, <laughs> and then I thought, oh, let's see where this ends. So I like the surprise of like I'm not a not an outliner. You know, all those travels, best restaurant. The best restaurant is I used to say it was Kokari, which is this Greek restaurant in San Francisco, but then I went to Brisbane. And there are so many Greeks in Australia. And I ate at this hotel restaurant in Brisbane, and it was the lightest, most astonishing Greek food I've ever had. It was just, I can't, and I'm going back. I'm going back in February, and I'm going to run to that restaurant and write down the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> what writer will you read no matter what they have written? Tobias Wolf, I will read no matter what he's written. Why? I love the way that he is grown 
When I say that, I mean like I'll read a short story by him and think, oh my God, there are no quotation marks. He stopped using quotation marks. And it works perfectly well, but I'll think, what led him to that? And I just like how, well, his stories are moral without being preachy. And Mm -hmm. whenever I read one of his stories, I know that I'm going to be a different person when I get up from the table at the end of it. And I'm never, never disappointed. And I met him once. I used to, I was, I'm embarrassed. A lot of times when I get some of this mail, I think of how I got Tobias Wolf's address when I was in my 20s and I would send him anonymous mail. So weird, you know, so. And then I went to his house. He had, I had a friend who was teaching at Syracuse where he was teaching in a different department. And she said, oh, I know him. He's having a party this weekend. You want to come? Oh, my God. So I went up to his house and I went to the party. And it was a lot of people from his church at the party. And I was the only one who got drunk. <laughs> I mean, drunk. And then I went out and uh, got stoned in the driveway of his house. And he came to New York a couple months later. A new book came out. And I was there in the audience. And he walked in and he said, David. And I'll never, what that meant to me, that he would remember my name. I mean, he's just such a lovely, decent person on top of, well, you couldn't be. You couldn't write his books unless you were as decent as him. You you know, you could think, oh, he uses names kind of like that. Or, oh, look, he uses that word a lot. And, oh, look, he likes to write about this kind of person. You could never imitate him because you don't have his goodness. I don't think anybody does. David Sedaris is a humorist in the school of... When you think about it, like, there's this... A, it's an American school because other countries, like in France, if you write a humorous essay, there's not a place for it. They're like, what do we do with this? (laughs) And the New Yorker has been a home for that in America for, I mean, there were plenty of magazines that have fallen by the wayside, but the New Yorker always has been. And when you think about, like if you reread old James Thurber essays, a lot of them are domestic essays, but it's just sort of, I suppose, just updated in a way that it's two men instead of a husband and a wife, but it's just about making a life with another person and the other person being very capable and you just being sort of worthless. And it's just a formula that's been around forever. Um, revered book that you read that perhaps you wish you hadn't. A book I wish I hadn't read. Um, Famous book that in your mind just doesn't deserve the kind of my dad and I both. My dad and I both always submit James Joyce's Ulysses. Yes, we know. We're going to get some letters about that. But yes, I didn't get it. Well, years ago. I was writing for Esquire, and they were doing an issue on books every man should read, right? And I'd never read Moby Dick. So I started reading Moby Dick, and I thought, oh, no, <laughs> this is so boring. <laughs> and, and I thought, I have to do – I'm never going to finish this book unless I put restrictions on myself. So I said, okay, you cannot brush your teeth, wash your hair, or take a bath until you finish this book. And we were living in Normandy and the woman across the street called me over to help her clean out her chicken house. And so, you know, have you ever cleaned out a chicken house? 
you just have mites all over you and you just feel so gross. But I couldn't take a bath or wash my hair <laughs> until I finished reading Moby Dick. Do you Dick. know how I was held captive to Moby Dick? Breastfeeding. Oh. When I had my daughter, I thought I am never going to read Moby Dick. I don't particularly enjoy <laughs> breastfeeding. I know I have to do it. Let's combine the two. So that's how I got it done. Huh. I'm probably the only person who listened to Moby Dick while breastfeeding. It's a sort of odd mix of the masculine and the feminine. I don't know. Well, anyway. I, you know, I never tried listening to it because I love audiobooks. Yeah. Maybe that would be David a little bit better. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not going to. It's well, not going to. I do just it. remember thinking, couldn't this be eighty pages long? Mm 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 mm. No, no, <laughs> no. It, if you're going to be, I well. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the terrible thing is I, I love John Irving. He's a good friend. And this book is one that he reveres and he just thinks is wonderful. And he goes back and reads chapters. And I think, John, God love you. <laughs> what possessed you <laughs> to do I, this? I know people who feel the same way. And so I, and they're people I respect. Yes. <laughs> and then I feel like there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. If I were in prison, I'd read it. <laughs> you know, or if I were in, you know, a hardship situation. Breastfeeding was kind of like that. <laughs> um, all right, last rapid fire question. If I was not a writer humorist, I would be? I would be, well, I think I would, when I first moved to New York, I, I would work for a house cleaning service. So I think that's what I would do. <laughs> I would be a housekeeper. It's crazy how much money housekeepers make now. Well, we had a housekeeper at the beach because we have this beach house that we were renting out and she was getting $50 an hour. Oh. But now you can't find anybody to do it. And so last summer in the middle of the season, she called and said, make that $100 an oh. hour. And I'm not doing laundry anymore. Huh. $100 an hour for vacuuming. I mean, I've done, I did it for years. It's not that hard. No, no. <laughs> it's no. not that not hard. No, no, it's true. And so I'd be cleaning, well, I'd be cleaning up. I and mean, I would be. Yeah. And you'd still own your Picasso, wouldn't you? You'd still have the Picasso. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. David Sedaris, I had so much fun talking to him. And I think it speaks to exactly how observational and his absorption rate that he signed, happy-go-lucky for me, he, he signed it to Kate, the breastfeeding Moby Dick reader. So I think that kind of shows you the kind of attention he pays to the conversations he has with the people who read his books, which is just awesome. Yeah, I, it reflected the fact, I think, when I finished with it, I, I thought I understand why he and his people established some conditions before they brought him to an interview for this podcast. And that was, A, that he wanted it to be in person, and he wanted us all in the same city. And since his last book, which was Happy Go Lucky, didn't publish last May, we called him right up in May, but it turns out we couldn't get all of us together in New York City. As we finished, I thought, gee, I'm glad we did that because it was so much more comfortable just having a conversation, all of us in the same room. And as Kate says, we, she and I both thoroughly enjoyed it. We did. And we got to ask him one of our favorite questions, which is, okay, David Sedaris, amazing writer, a go-go. What's your favorite independent bookstore? And he answered, 
Arendelle Books in Seattle, Washington. Not only did he answer that, but I think he answered it almost entirely without hesitation. So we reached out. We reached, good Kate. We reached out to the owner, Phil Bevis, uh, who was willing to talk to us and was thrilled that David mentioned them as one of uh, his all-time favorite bookstores. Because it was, I thought it was so interesting because when he said that, and he did say it without hesitation, you're right, Arendelle Books in Seattle. And I thought, well, he must have done a bunch of readings there or something, or they paid him a lot of money or what. No, he had been going into Arendelle for years, curling up in a corner with some books, not introducing himself. And as you'll hear from Phil Bevis, um, Bevis was kind of embarrassed that he hadn't recognized David Sedaris until recently. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Phil Bevis of Arendelle Books, we are so excited to have you here. Normally, we sort of pick a bookstore to go with the writer. But when we asked David Sedaris about his favorite bookstore, you were top of the list. How long has David Sedaris been coming in there? Well, it turns out quite a while, but we didn't know that. It was pretty embarrassing. Um, he He actually had to introduce himself uh, a few weeks ago. And then, of course, I immediately went total fanboy because he's one of my favorite writers. And I mean, who single-handedly has helped me to feel that my family was normal. And which took, <laughs> took some doing, let me tell you. No, it's just, it turns out for years. And just absolutely mortifying to not have recognized him. Bill has a very interesting lineage, a very interesting history. You didn't start out where you are now as a, a very prominent independent bookstore, you started out with a different business model. What was it? Well, we started out as a, back in 1984, we started out as a press printing, you know, limited edition books, letterpress, you know, the old fashioned way with metal type on handmade paper. And the bookstore grew out of that because what I found was I had this business model that was very organized and very structured. And basically, a book would be in editorial design, a book would be in physical production, and a book would be in marketing. And it was just this seamless flow where authors and illustrators and 
typographers and printers, just, you know, and binders, it would all just flow. And what I found was that nothing would happen for weeks and then everything would happen all at the same time. And it was like <laughs> watching a python eat three pigs at the same time, right? And then, then be puzzled because of the indigestion. And so my partner at the time encouraged me to actually open a bookstore because I was going to go, she told me I was going to go insane waiting for these things to happen. You know, we've been publishing books, actually publishing books and running the bookstore ever since. You know, our new imprint is, is Chatwin Books, which is its own cool little publishing company. And we actually print books uh, right down the street here in Seattle. We have four presses, including two old style letter presses and two super modern color presses. And it's a fun combination. Phil, you are a bookstore in Seattle. Yeah. And if Phil heard the word Seattle and books in the, in the same sentence, they would immediately think of Amazon headquartered in Seattle. Yeah. Does that make life any different from you, for you being sort of in the belly of the beast? Well, it means that ignoring out-of-towners. When we're talking people in the city, right? It means that one out of five of people working age who walk through the door who have jobs work for Amazon, okay? Hmm. They're not necessarily career folks there. Hmm. You know, it's often a first job or a second job here in town, and either they stay and move on, or they go to Austin, or they go to Boston, or they go to LA, or they go you know, to the Bay Area. A big percentage of our clientele who are actually people who work at Amazon. Now, that doesn't mean that one of our best-selling books sitting right up next to the register is that we don't suppress that, and it's called How to Resist Amazon, right? So, <laughs> and about two-thirds of the copies that we sell of that book sell to people who actually tell us when they're purchasing it that they work at a certain large American <laughs> company. And it's, it's vastly entertaining, frankly. Um, but, you know, Amazon is, uh, I mean, we sell a lot of books off Amazon, both from our press and the bookstore lists our entire inventory. They're competitors. They're one of our portals. It's a complicated relationship. It really is. I want to ask you, because one of the things I loved most about your website was reading about your staff. You have an eclectic group of well-read folks with interesting, eccentric personalities. I want to talk, because we talked when we were setting up this interview, a little bit about your staff philosophy and how they operate. So I want you to sort of tell our listeners about that if you can. Well, so we have a, and also the majority of the staff actually doesn't want their pictures on the website. So put it this way, the, the people you don't see are the ones who are the most independent of mind. Let's put it that way. We have what you would call a devolved management style, right? So we have a really horizontal hierarchy, right? And so people work here because they're the kind of folks who don't want to be micromanaged. They just want to know what needs to be done and they figure out who's going to do it. And so I very seldom tell people what to do, which is a good thing because all I do is cause confusion and trouble, right? But <laughs> it, it means that we attract the kind of people who don't just love books, but they love sharing the kind of books that they're interested in with other folks. So we have, I think it's eight people who buy here, right? In other words, eight folks who have the ability to go into our ordering systems and say, well, we ought to carry those books by people I've never heard of. And put those books on display and talk to our customers about them. 
that's a lot of operations, they have a different approach. And that is where, you know, they have a buyer or they have buyers in categories. Nobody owns categories here. We've got, let's say, one staffer who's passionate about literature and translation. But if he really dislikes a writer, it doesn't mean, or a particular book by a writer, it doesn't mean we don't carry that if, you know, one of our other staffers thinks it's a good book, or frankly, if our customers ask for it. And so, you know, we try not to pigeonhole things. We just let our staff do what they think we ought to be doing. And so far, it's working. You have on your internet site, website, a very active sale of used books, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds listed. And to my surprise, this is no criticism, I think you underprice them. (laughs) I think you sell them too cheaply. There are first edition signed books on there that are selling for $20 of $30 of very well-known authors. Am I right? Am I right? I think my father's actually worried about you. I'm not sure there's a question there so much as like, Hey, Phil, do you have enough to buy food? (laughs) So, you know, and that's, there's two different approaches in this business. You can look to squeeze the most wine out of every grape, or you can look to basically squeeze a lot of grapes, right? (laughs) We, price very competitively, and we sell a lot of books. So on our social media, you'll see photographs of Ken, who is six foot five, taking out hand trucks of double box, two deep boxes, as tall as he is. And those are sometimes two and three a day to go to the post office that's across the street. I mean, we sell a ton of books on our store, and we sell a ton of books online. And I like that. I like a very fresh stock. I don't want to work in a museum where People come back six months later, a year later, and the same books are on the shelves. You know, when I was first starting, I worked in bookshops that had that approach. And I didn't find it particularly exciting. Yes, it's nice to be surrounded by old friends, but I like new friends too. And it's just, it's more fun. Do you do a larger business in these used books, which as I say, you price very competitively and you have a very interesting collection, or do you do a larger business as a more traditional bookstore? So there's two different answers to that. And the first is at retail. And the second is online. At retail, we are just over, we're, we're like around 55-ish percent new books. And that's that's in dollars. And then online, were about 30% new books. Mm. Mm. What was the book that sparked it for you? Was there a book or an author where you were like, yeah, this is going to be my life? There were two different things that sparked me. And the first is my birth father had been in publishing. And when he passed away when I was a freshman in college, I had to get rid of just about 6,000 books. This is in Northern California. I went to a very famous bookstore in Berkeley called Moe's with a couple van loads and it would take them like 3000 books. It took them several hours to go through. And so, you know, I wandered around the bookstore and upstairs and there were a book department. I found this copy of the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it was a limited edition of 1500 copies printed by the limited editions club back in the thirties. And this copy had been custom bound in this stunning leather binding that I still have. And it was $85. And this was 1980. And $85 when you're, you know, a freshman in college, that's a lot of money in 1980. I mean, today it's equivalent of about what, 350, something like that. And, <laughs> and I bought it and it just, it was luminous. And then when I went back down to school, I was walking 
up Bruin Walk to class one day. And uh, Charles Bukowski, who was a very collected author in his time, happened to be, he just showed up and did an impromptu reading at Meyerhoff Free Speech Park. And he said something that I can't repeat on air, but it was really <laughs> raunchy. And all these pretty girls laughed. And if you've ever seen a picture of Charles Bukowski, you'll know why that was improbable. And so I turned to the guy next to me and I said, who is this guy? And uh, he told me and he sent me to this funky little bookstore in Westwood. And I bought a couple books by Charles Bukowski and I stayed up all night reading. And the next day, I mean, literally all night reading. And the next day I mailed one each of those books to friends at different colleges. And that got me excited about what was then contemporary writing. My inspiration is half new writing and half these beautiful antiquarian books. You know, and that, that's why our motto is books for readers and collectors, because that's that was me. What were your favorite titles of 2022? Is it fair for me to say that my favorite title of 2022 was actually a 2021 that you couldn't get because it was on back order forever? <laughs> I mean, you know. That's fair. It's a book called Freshwater for Flowers by a French writer named Valerie Perrin and one of a bunch of awards. And that's an amazing book. You know, and again, I got, I'd have to look to see when Matt Haig's Midnight Library came out. That was, that's a really fun and inspiring book that I love putting in the hands of people. Well, Phil Bevis, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. What particularly impresses me is that David Sedera said you are his favorite independent bookstore in the country. And it's not because he was doing events at the bookstore, but because he was wandering in as a customer and you didn't know he was David Sedaris. But he had such high praise for your bookstore. And obviously, uh, people, if they're in Seattle, should stop on Pioneer Square, Arendelle Books. And also a fascinating website with lots and lots of really interesting books that are for resale at very moderate prices. So, Phil Bevis, good to talk to you. All the best. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Phil Bevis with Arendelle Books. I love so many things about that interview. First, I just want to say, because we didn't talk about this, but I want our audience to know this. If you go on Arendelle's website, you will find that they have a former Navy petty officer slash machinist named Lou who works there. And I, I got to tell you, normally you expect the folks in black turtlenecks, the folks with Coke bottle glasses, folks like me to be working at the bookstore, but you don't necessarily expect former Navy petty officer slash machinists who are really into Patrick O'Brien to get a job at a bookstore. And I just, I love that. I love that about Arendelle. So we will end this podcast uh, reminding you who is responsible for making it all happen. And then if you're a regular listener, you know, we ask our principal guest each time to give us a little, what we call a coda to take us off the air. So we asked David Sedaris for one. And with a big sort of puckish grin on his face, he gave us a truly off, off, off color coda. He had a limerick that was uh, uh, that was just not uh, for family. And I'm happy about that, but um, but we can't use it. Can't use it. No, no way. So, so anyway, he he said okay, and then he gave us this. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Kevin Ryder, Ariel Chester, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. Well... 
I guess my words to live by are always the same thing. It's always been the same thing. It's just work harder. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.